Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. A couple of months back, Oliver and I introduced Take Two, a new series where we discuss two albums by the same artists on back-to-back weeks. Last time, we took on Janet Jackson's Control and the Velvet Rope. To heat rocks by one of the biggest pop stars of the 80s and 90s. Salute. And this time we turn our attention to another icon of the past 25 years, a three-time winner of Complex Magazine's Greatest Rapper Alive annual title and the pride of Marcy Projects. Jay-Z. Next week, we'll be talking about his 2003 LP, The Black Album. But today, we start at the beginning with Jay's debut album from 1996, Reasonable Doubt. Mannerisms of a young Bobby De Niro Spent Spanish wisdoms in a whip with De Niro Crime organized like the Pharaoh I cream, I diamond gleam High post like Hakeem Got a lot of things to drive Brooklyn to Queens I gotta keep my... Jay-Z has one of the greatest career arcs in pop music history. We first met him as a gangly teenager in the early 90s, fast rapping his way on hip-hop novelty songs. But by mid-decade, he had deliberately begun to reshape his image taking a page from peers like Biggie and Nas by recasting himself as a survivor of the crack game, now trying to take on the rap game, but always a hustler at heart. This new persona debuted to critical acclaim when Jay-Z dropped Reasonable Doubt some 24 years ago, a rapper who mixed moxie, introspection, and a devilish flow in a way that countless MCs have attempted to copy since. Backing him up was a murderer's row of beat makers, including DJ Premier, Ski, Clark Kent, and his old mentor, Big Jazz, lacing him with some of the best production of its era. It's not quite right to call Reasonable Doubt Jay-Z's humble beginnings because there's not much humble about a rapper who would eventually call himself Jehovah, but compared to his current stature as one half of pop music's most potent power couple, his debut felt just a touch more small scale. At the time, he was just trying to become the next king of New York, Conquering the world could wait until later. Morgan, do you think it's weird that three years in into our show, no one has ever chosen a Jay-Z album for their heat rock? I'm somehow both surprised yet also not surprised as to why that would be. But I'd love to hear your thoughts about this first. Well, you know, I thought at least by this point, if none of the other albums, somebody would have at least chosen the Black Album, which is my favorite. Um, That Mm. that album is outstanding. Um, It marks a a critical point in Jay-Z's career as he had announced his retirement. And I thought by now we've circled around him. We've talked. I, I'm surprised that we've we've had more episodes about Kanye, and no episodes about Jay Z. I don't think people are sleeping on the on him. I, I don't think that at all. I just don't know what the issue yeah. is. Why no one has thought to talk about about him? But shout out to us because we had the foresight and the brilliance to to bring it up ourselves. Okay, <laughs> shout out to us as hosts. I was mulling this over on some pet theory level. And I guess some of the things I I came up with that might explain this is number one, that as popular as Jay uh, is and has been, I don't think he has the same kind of hardcore cult following 
um, in the same way that you might find with, uh, I don't know what, like De La Soul or Wu-Tang Clan would be an even better example. Certainly Jay obviously has fans, uh, but I don't know if anyone's out there rocking a Jay-Z changed my life t-shirt, Yao Ming. Uh, and I think, so that's one thing. And I think the other one is that it's one thing to be, uh, to have a very good rags to riches story, which Jay has, and he reminds us about all the time. But I think it's another thing that once you have hit the riches part of that narrative, you are now married to one of the biggest pop stars on the planet. You are, or as a household, you all are literal billionaires and you're constantly reminding people about how successful you are. So I think that to an extent, we want our artists to be aspirational role models, but it becomes very hard to start caping for someone or keep caping for someone who has since become, uh, you know, hip hop's equivalent to what, I don't know, Jeff Bezos or something like that. Well, I agree with that. I agree with that. But I think at the time, um, you know, Jay-Z was sort of building this empire, building this fortune and uh, doing things like Hard Knock, Hard Knock, Hard Knock Life and uh, Big Pimpin', I think people were caping for him. I think people. Oh, totally. I think I think his fanship was was gigantic, and I think people were really invested in this rags to riches tale. I think we fast yeah. forward forward to now, and so many people have made, uh, have gone from rags to riches, and they've gone they've gone they've gone to it overnight. You know, inter- right. internet sensationalism, YouTube. Um, it's so it's the road to riches is so much quicker now. And so right. while it was super aspirational then, I think people have been like, well, I can just be, you know, I can just be internet famous and still get to that level. And so I think people are less, um, I don't want to say less excited. No, I, I, well, I would say that. Yeah. Less excited. I think, I, right. Yeah. I think there is. I think over time, it's not that his music has aged poorly. And we'll, we can certainly talk about this, especially with you know talking about Reasonable Doubt. I don't think that's aged poorly at all. But I think to the degree in which when people think about, you know, what's their heat rocks? What are their favorite recordings? Albums from Jay that might have been the case, let's say 10, 15 years ago. I just think with the passage of time, because his, his status as an icon has reached limits um, or, or heights, I should say, that I don't think we've seen from almost any other uh, hip hop artist that I can imagine uh, outside of maybe Drake. Um, it just becomes less, I, I think it, it somehow diminishes his import simply because, well, he doesn't need our help anymore. Like he's already on top of the world. It's kind of the equivalent to saying that James Cameron is your favorite movie director after uh, Titanic or Avatar. Um, if you consider yourself to be a serious film aficionado, I mean, I'm sure there's some people who Cameron is their favorite one. He's just not a cool choice anymore when he has already crowed to the world. I'm at, I'm on top of the world. And I think Jay kind of similar to that. in in, uh, in that respect, he, he becomes a little bit less interesting only because he's become so insanely uh, popular and successful. Right. And I, I agree hundred percent with all of that. And also um, I think what helped build this, his legend were these videos, these larger than life hype Williams directed videos, which gave right. him this stature. And we've gone past the video stage and now into these these micro mini moments, these, you know, one minute moments on TikTok. And he's not doing that. He doesn't need to do that. Yeah. You know, he, he now he's chairman of the board, like times a trillion. Right. So he, right. he doesn't need to he's not out in our face. But to your point, he's super larger than life. Regardless, I am so pleased that we finally have gotten around to talking about Jay. So for whatever reason that our guests haven't brought brought him up sooner, 
I still love his recordings and especially the two that we're going to be tackling during this, this take two series. So I'm glad that we, we've gotten here. And Morgan, what was your introduction to, to Mr. Hova? This was actually mm, mm-hmm. reasonable doubt was my introduction and through the strength of, um, ain't no end. Um, I love that song. And I think my introduction to that song was the nutty professor soundtrack. Um, mm. because in the nineties, the, um, the, the, Black film soundtracks were fire. Sometimes the soundtracks were better than the film. And unless you just like a like a nutty Professor Stan out there, <laughs> the soundtrack for this was was quite compelling and Ain't No End was was everywhere. I played hard until they say God, he's keeping it real. Chicka stay hard, love, don't even trip. Shit, I never slip. Nigga, get a grip. What you don't see is what you get. Weapons concealed, what the fuck y'all feel? When your niggas play sick, we can all get it. What the deal? For me, I was familiar with him at least in terms of I had heard his voice as early as the early 90s because this was during his now infamous Hawaiian Sophie era. And that refers to a single, kind of a novelty single, that was put out by Jay-Z's uh, mentor, uh, Jazz. So not to be confused with Jay-Z, Jazz, J-A-Z. Uh, and Jay-Z was the teenage protege of Jazz. And Jazz had some decent joints uh, back in the day, at not Hawaiian Sophie. I wouldn't put that up as, as one of the better ones. But he did, a, you know, Jazz did a lot of work with um, a variety of, of producers from that era, did a lot of fast rap. Uh, one of my favorite songs, which also features Jay-Z on it, uh, was a single produced by Prince Paul called Just That Simple. Hey, yo, let's begin with the beginning, the start. Let's get deep within it, the heart, partner. Yeah, you got a partner? No. Don't be sarcastic, partner. Okay, partner, let's go. Who's superior? Post the who? Be inferior. We are the two in a prime crack you mean we're in the barrier of the better area causing havoc and hysteria? Yeah, whatever, friends. Yeah, we in there. Like an eight-room pad with an upstairs. Props are up here, yeah. The thing is, though, I wasn't really paying attention to Jay-Z specifically. He was just a voice on the song, just a feature before we even described it as a feature. But I do remember him distinctly in terms of when he elevated to his solo career. This is before Reasonable Doubt. came out around 1995. Um, and it was the remix to his debut single in my lifetime. And you can hear it in that that sample there where you know he had that little bit of i guess it's a bit of a triplet rhyme at the end of his lines so he had a very distinctive flow at the time um that you see also carried over just a year you know more into reasonable doubt but that this was already jay distinguishing himself as a lyricist um as well as providing kind of that the basics of his narrative right former drug dealer marcy projects you know basically left the crack game and tr- tried to take over the rap game. He's beginning to put this stuff together very early on with his, his first solo efforts. And then reasonable doubt becomes, I don't want to call it a capstone because it's a debut album, but it does feel like this moment of arrival. And I'm wondering if you remember the first time you heard the LP, what your, your feelings toward it were. My early impressions of Jay-Z around this, on this album were, he seems like someone that's affiliated Beyond just sort of a, wasn't gangster rap, it was like mafioso. You know, the cover, he's got on the hat. He looks like yeah. Sinatra a little bit. 
He looks yeah. like, you know, connected. You know what I mean? It's sort yeah. of like a, he's part of like a hip hop Ocean's Eleven. And, <laughs> you know, he's got, you know what I'm saying? He's, he's New York affiliated. Yeah. So it was a little bit, if I can say this, a, a little bit more sophisticated um, gangster rap. And I liked his New York tales. I had, you know, been listening to, to Biggie talk about, you know, his life and, you know, and all the stuff that, that was his experience of New York. I liked hearing Jay-Z's. It was like, it's like I've said on other episodes where we talk about New York, we were, we were, we were being introduced to neighborhoods, to communities, to Shaolin, right. to Marcy Projects, yeah. to Queensbridge, yeah. to Brooklyn. And so I liked what Jay-Z had to say about his, he always, he always read to me as an entrepreneur. It wasn't just a criminal enterprise. He was like a real, I mean, he presented like, you, you bought up Bezos. He was sort of a criminal Bezos, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> An Perhaps entrepreneurial. A better, <laughs> a, a better suit. So right. I, I was super sold on this. I was super sold on his legend really early, I have to say. Yeah. Well, for me, the, the initial impression I came away with was really around the production. And I'm sure I've talked about this on our show before, but my entry point into almost any album, especially hip hop albums, it's not the MCs. It's usually it begins with the production and Jay, you know, put together a pretty impressive mix of folks who handled uh, the production by committee, uh, which is what you began to see on Illmatic and reasonable doubt comes in the wake of that. But you have ski on here, handling a lot of the key joints. You have DJ premier, of course, uh, DJ Clark Kent is in the mix. And I felt like, uh, in total, they created a really, really well-crafted uh, sonic album. I don't know if it necessarily reaches the same level as similar production by committee LPs of the same era. Like, I don't think it's, it's as good as Illmatic. I don't think it's quite as good as Ready to Die. Um, but I would take it over, let's say, Biggie's Life Over Death. And I would take Reasonable Doubt, production-wise, over any subsequent Nas album not entitled Illmatic, mm. um, which to me is pretty high praise. I and mean, I think this is a really exceptionally well-produced LP. And that really is one of the things that jumped out to me. And I was thinking about what you're saying just a moment ago, Morgan, about the impression that Jay was trying to make with that album cover, the way he wanted to portray himself. And as we've sometimes have done on here, I think it's relevant to put this album into its, its annual context, if you will. So these are some of the big albums from 1996, uh, hip hop wise, uh, you were mentioning Foxy Brown. So her Il Na Na comes out mm -hmm. alongside Lil Kim's hardcore outcast had AT aliens, their sophomore album, uh, Tupac, uh, scored. I think, I think this was his big, biggest breakout album to that point, which was all eyes on me in terms of just multi-platinum. Uh, and speaking of best-selling, I mean, the Fuji's, the score comes out in 96. I want to say that was the best-selling rap album of the year. Yeah. Buster Rhymes has his debut solo with the coming on the, in, on the indie tip. You have, you have a company flow, co-flow with fun crusher. And then De La Soul's Stakes is High, which is an album that I I'll probably will come back and, and talk about later, in some ways is is kind of the the antipode to um reasonable doubt because they're they're basically calling people out for pretending like they're mafioso. And it's like, yo, uh, De La, who who are you talking about here? Right. And then you got Jay looking like a mafioso on their cover. I don't I don't remember what the timing was between how these two got released, but I feel like if not intentionally, at least these two things are in conversation. Anyways, my point is here, where do you think Reasonable Doubt fits into this? Because looking at that list of albums, there it shares some similarities with some of the things here, but it doesn't really feel like it has a close companion 
to other albums from that year. And just two that I wanted to 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 mention that were weren't on that list was uh, the Roots' Illadelph Half Life, and also yes. uh, that that came out that year, and also um, uh, Bahamadia's uh, Collage that came out. Right. So Philly, true, true. so so yeah. Philly was representing. I think the difference between all those albums is that I will say this over and over again. I think with reasonable doubt, we weren't just meeting Jay Z; we were meeting a brand. And before we started before we started even using that language brand i think that's what sets these albums his album apart from the rest is that it is very much tied to that artwork and the cover we are meeting Mm -hmm. this is the beginning of the legend and we are meeting the brand that would be known this this is a thing that he kept repeating i'm the chairman of the board i'm the best i'm running things it's a business i'm building an empire and this was the moment that we met him and different Mm -hmm. from all those albums I just don't think that we were uh, being introduced to a persona. That's what. That's all I'm saying. I got the feds sending me letters because I'm schooling the youth. But they can't lock me down because my tool is the truth. Yeah, I sold drugs for a living. That's a given. Why is it? Why don't y'all try to visit the neighborhoods I live in? My mind been through hell. My neighborhood is crime central. Where cops lock you up more than try to defend you. I push you to the limit. When Morgan, you had mentioned before about how Complex Magazine, which has been keeping a, a running tally of who they deem as the best rapper alive, right? Jay-Z's won that three times. Um, though surprisingly, not necessarily for the albums I thought he would, but that's a whole other story. Um, he was not chosen in 1996, but I, I want to say he might've been like honorable mention. And I'm wondering at this early stage in his solo career, do you feel like Jay-Z was in contention for being one of the best, the best rappers alive? Absolutely. And I think what gets lost, I think sometimes in, in some of the stuff that I've mentioned before, this brand, the stories, um, the chairman of the board thing is just how tight he was lyrically. I think he knew it. Um, but I think when I look back on it, I don't know at the time that he got the recognition, because I was going to ask you if you remembered offhand, how many mics did the source give this? I just looked it up and he, it, the album got four mics, which I think is very respectable for a debut album. Uh, especially in that era of the source. And I don't remember if I want to say around 96, the source was still being pretty, uh, they clutched that fifth mic pretty hard. Like they were not about to just give it out for any reason. So I think four mics was actually pretty good for a debut LP. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure Jay was pissed off and thought he deserved the fifth one. Okay. Every rapper thinks they deserve the fifth <laughs> one. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's, I think it was received pretty well. And I think one of the things that stands out is, I mean, obviously people talk a lot, especially him himself, they talk about the quality of, of Jay-Z's flow, but I think what Reasonable Doubt really also demonstrated, and we'll get into this in the second half today when we get into the individual songs, is just, he had a real breadth of style. So he can give you like, you know, Ain't No Mm is like, that's just, you know, it's, I don't know if it was a true freestyle, but it has the kind of energy and the improvisational flair that we associate with a good um, a good freestyle. And it obviously also was a huge, huge party jam. So, you know, you can, he can make party cuts. Um, but then you have narrative storytelling songs all yes. over this album, including yes. a couple of my favorite tunes. Um, you have his duet with Biggie, which shows his ability to work off of a different, another rapper. Um, and, and then you just have straight up, you know, jiggy style flossing songs about wealth and success, uh, the aspirational tracks. He does that really well as, uh, in addition. So I think he was able to demonstrate all of these different kinds of facets to both his personality and his imagination. 
Uh, I think this also worked really well in terms of making this debut album as rich uh, as it ended up being. If you feel it, I keep it real in the most. I know you're feeling it. Crystals are nice. I like the toes. I keep on spilling it. Bone crushes. I keep real close. I got the skill for this. On my back, the fly is closed. Looking ill as shit. Transactions illegitimate because life is still a bitch. And then you die. But well, we will be back with more of our take two conversation about Jay Z's reasonable doubt after some words from our sibling max fun podcast keep it locked are you feeling elevated levels of anxiety do you quake uncontrollably even thinking about watching cable news Do you have disturbing nightmares, only to realize it's two in the afternoon and you're up? If you've experienced one or more of these symptoms, you may have FNO, news overload. Fortunately, there's treatment. Hi, I'm Dave Holmes, host of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters helps fight FNO. That's because Troubled Waters stimulates your joy zone. On Troubled Waters, two comedians will battle one another for pop culture supremacy. So join me. Dave Holmes for two, two, two doses of Troubled Waters a month. The cure for your news overload. Available on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jared Hill, co-host of the brand new Maximum Fun podcast, Fan Time. And I'm Travel Anderson. I'm the other more fabulous co-host. And the reason you really should be tuning in. I feel the nausea rising. To be Fan is to be a big fan of something, but also have some challenging or anti-feelings toward it. Kind of like Kanye. We're all fans of Kanye. He's a musical genius, but like, you know. He thinks slavery is a choice. Or like the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Like, I love the drama, but do I want to see black women fighting each other on screen? Ew, too. We're tackling all of those complex and complicated conversations about the people, places, and things that we love. Even though they may not love us back. Fanti, Maximum Fun, Podcast. And we are back with this iteration of our Take Two episode on Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt. So let's just jump right in. What, Morgan, is the fire track? off of this Jay-Z LP for you? I went back and forth because I really like, um, I love Brooklyn's Finest because I love Biggie. I've said on many, many shows and I and I stay uh, consistent with that. He's my favorite rapper of all time. And I love Dead Presidents too. Um, if I had to pick a second to this, it would be Devils. But my favorite track is Ain't No End. Um, that's just it for me. And Christian, if you could drop a little bit in. I try, but love, you know these hoes be making me weak. Y'all know how it goes, be so I stay deep. What up, boo? Just keep me laced in the illest snakes. Bank rolls of shit. Back rubs in the French tub. Smacking this bitch. Wifey nigga. So when you flip that coat, remember the days you was dead broke. But now you style and I raised you. I mean, that, that seven minutes of funk sample is just yeah. so, uh. It's just the stank. Oh my god. That's the one that just gets me so hyped. And that's the one that I play on repeat over and over again. Friends tell me I should leave you alone. 
For my fire track, much like you, Morgan, my option B is also Brooklyn's finest because I think for just sheer hypeness for energy, it has, I mean, that song does it. And it really has, and this is like almost a legendary song amongst rap producers of the nineties. Um, not even near, it is a legendary song amongst uh, producers of the nineties because of the chop work that DJ Clark Kent used to make that loop from Ohio players ecstasy work. And I forget the specifics, but the way in which he hooked it up was it's not as straightforward as it sounds because it, that the loop that's in the song doesn't actually exist in the Ohio players original without doing some chopping and rearranging. I just remember Clark getting a lot of accolades back in the day for taking this loop that everyone recognized from um, Ecstasy because it was such a big hit uh, for Ohio players, but people just couldn't figure out how to work it into a hip hop sample context until Clark Kent did it. And people were like, oh my God, I can't believe you made this work. What's your name? Who shot your Maltese like Sinatra? Peruvians tried to do me in. I ain't paid them yet. Trying to push 700s, they ain't made them yet. Rolex and bracelets, frostbit. Rings too, niggas riding away, call me igloo sticks. I said this was my plan B pick because my plan A for my fire track, it it's the evils. Because I think in terms of just pure songcraft, this is such an incredible demonstration of Jay as a storyteller with, you know, this song is built on a series of morality tales that to this day, just are, I find haunting. I kept feeding the money to shit started to make sense. Who could ever foresee? We used to stay up all night at slumber parties. Now I'm trying to rock his bitch to sleep. All the years we were real close. Now I see his fears through her tears. No, she wishing we were still close. Don't cry, it is the beat. In time, I take away your miseries and make it mine. It's also just one of my favorite favorite premiere tracks of all time. Uh, he's looping up. Uh, it's an early Alan Toussaint uh, song from, I think, I don't know, 1961 or 62. Everything about this to me, I mean, even 20, almost 25 years later is just magical. Shit is wicked on these mean streets. None of my friends speak. We all trying to win. But then again, maybe it's for the best though. Cause when they seeing too much, you know they're trying to get you touched. We have the same, because those are those are besides ain't no, those two are my, yeah. my favorite off the track. I, I wanted to say something about Clark Kent because that's another name that doesn't come up today as often. But during this time he was he was killing. Yeah. And um he was prolific on here, and I wanted to mention one of my favorite remixes that he did was he um, he, cause the only other group that comes to mind immediately that did something so, uh, amazing and wonderful with Minnie Rip Ripperton is a tribe called quest, obviously, but Clark, Clark Kent remixed players anthem, uh, for junior mafia. And he, mm. and he and he sampled memory lane. Mm. 
<sighs> you are sending me down such a nostalgic lane right now. Uh, I mean, this this era especially was not to get too off into a personal tangent, but you know, 95, 96 was I had at this point, I'd had my my radio show on KALX for, I think, about two years now. So I had gotten some experience under my feet. Um, I had started writing uh, as re- do, uh, doing reviews, primarily hip hop. Um, and just was soaking in so much of the music that was happening and every remix, every new 12 inch and B side that came out, you know, I'm just like, wait, wait, what's, what's, you know, what's, what's new at the store? What's new on the radio? What's new here and there. And so just even hearing that remix just completely takes me back to this really fertile moment in my professional and personal life, uh, from, from that era. And that remix got, got strong run for me. And I, I had totally forgotten that was Clark Kent. So shout out to DJ Clark Kent. Clark Kent. Like, yeah. And yeah. and it brings up a lot of nostalgia for me too, you know that 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 we're talking about now the culture. I think about all the magazines, straight from the lip, um, rap sheet, um, what vibe was given, what the source was given, how how immersed I was um, in the culture at the time, and you know just it just brings back good it just brings back good memories. So I'm glad we're talking about this. But when when you hear um, heads older heads talk about the golden years of hip hop and stuff. This is what we mean. This it just, this time yeah. was just so, so rich with, with material. So I'm glad we're talking about this. Morgan, what's your favorite moment off of reasonable doubt? It's Mary J. Blige. <laughs> <laughs> so predictable. It's Mary J. Blige. Yeah. It's Mary J. Blige and her, yeah. her contribution to, uh, to can't knock the hustle. And, uh, yeah. and I love this because she's, she's just in between uh, this is 1996. So she's just in between, uh my life and share my world and yeah. in the song in her singing she samples a little bit she sings a little bit of 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 my life which i love so that's my favorite favorite moment um he'd go on to have many many other contributors and stuff but i just love mary i love the new yorkness of it and i and i and i love that moment yeah yeah What about you? It this goes back to Brooklyn's finest. It's the moments are whenever Jay and Biggie hand off the lyrical baton between each other. And I'm not going to say it's the all-time best cuz I haven't studied the list of times in which two people rapping are trading off in those transitional points, but it is one of the first examples I can think of, maybe with the exception of Biggie and Method Man on Hushacha, not sorry, not Hushacha on um on the f the world uh no the what the what wasn't it yeah. called the what yeah yeah uh they kind of they do it s- something similar but i don't think to the level of deftness that exists on brooklyn's finest and just to illustrate that the point i mean this is one of the first trans one of the transitions that stands out to me in terms of that that passing back and forth Jay-Z, big smalls, nigga, shit your drawers. Brooklyn, represent y'all. Hit your falls, you crazy. Think a little bit of rhymes can play me. I'm from Mars, see, I'm varsity chump, you JV. Drink a Jay-Z. Nigga, baby, my uh. bed stop flows malicious. Delicious, fuck three wishes. Made my road to riches from six. That's great. I mean, that whole song, that whole song is just filled with them just going back and forth. They have such great lyrical chemistry with each other. It always surprised me that 
that uh, for life after death that I didn't, I don't know the, the story behind whether or not there was an attempt to do a, you know, Brooklyn's finest part two and invite Jay back to do that again. But man, I could listen to those two just, you know, rhyme together forever. Uh, I think this might be the only example of, of, of them working together out there though, which is unfortunate, obviously because, because Biggie died. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that's my favorite moment is just any time that they're, they're trading off between the two. Um, and if you don't mind me taking us into, I think a very controversial direction, but related to this, because we've all asked this, I feel like at some point or another, does Jay-Z have the same career he has if Biggie doesn't die? You're trying to get me on the hot seat and I'm not going to go there, buddy. You off on your own. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I really don't know because I think that I think I think about this a lot. I think about all the careers that would have been affected if Biggie had been alive. It's it was just a it was right. just it's just a three year run. And yeah. I and I really don't know. I don't know if they would have had competing albums. Hell, Brooklyn Finest, Brooklyn's Finest is such a good start. Would they would they have had a, a collaborative album? Mm, like a watch the throne kind of like thing. a watch the throne so what do you think i think it would have played out differently i i don't know if that means that he would not have been able to get where he eventually did but i do think that it's two things right it's that you're you have one less com competitor for the king of new york title which meant, meant a lot to rappers back then number one um number two it would be, I'm not trying to say this to be cynical, but as much chemistry as they might've had, you know, in 96, because of the competitiveness yeah. of hip hop of that era, it would not have been impossible for me to imagine that at some point, what began as a friendly, you know, almost like another mentor mentorship, a mentee relationship would have turned more competitive. Uh, maybe not to the level of like Jay and Nas, but more like a Cold War situation where you have two people both claiming Brooklyn trying to outdo one another. Um, and, you know, obviously life, it's, you know, life After Death was successful partly because it was posthumous, right? People bought that album in droves because it, it came out after Biggie's death. I think that album would still have been incredibly successful if Biggie had lived. And I think that would have put more pressure on how Jay was going to respond to having, you know, this colleague in his own backyard putting stuff out. And would that have led Jay to make different decisions around the next couple of projects that he would do? No matter what, I think Biggie as a continued presence would have pushed Jay-Z's career, at least in that like late eight, late nineties, early two thousands era, I think it would have had to have gone in at least some different directions. Um, I don't know, like I said, I, I don't know if it would have prevented him from rising to the, the extent that he did, but I do think the absence opened up a lane for Jay to be able to succeed in a way that would have had to have been different if Biggie was still alive, putting out music, basically taking up, um, attention, right. In a way that Jay didn't have as much competition because, because Big was gone. But I also wonder if, I mean, at the time that, that, uh, that, that Biggie dies, there's this. Biggie's killed. There's this huge uh, East Coast West Coast feud that's been brewing before, and I'm wondering if, if because the feud didn't start, the feud didn't start when he got killed. The feud, the feud right. started before. So I wonder. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I wondered. I wonder if Jay Z and Biggie would have bonded, would have had some East Coast solidarity, which would have mm. prevented beef from starting 
because they're, you know, you're, you're, you know, they're strength in numbers and because all this stuff is brewing on our coast. And I wonder if this would have pushed them together enough to push them to do an album or to keep beef from between them because it's an East thing. We're East. And all you had these East Coast people at the time, East Coast rappers, um, you know, matching forces because of what was going out on, going on out here. I don't think it would have been outright beef. I just think it would have been a very competitive spirit that would have change the decision making because you're trying to keep up with the joneses so to say um you know jay especially based off of of the persona that he presents on this album it's not like he would never have allowed himself to become just another satellite within the the, the bad boy universe like that he's not going to subsume himself right he wants to be his own person self-made right so that means that whatever biggie and puff would have been end up doing it with bad boy throughout the course of the late 90s um which of course even after biggie's death i mean bad boy rises into its moment in, in a big big way jay would have had to have responded to that on some level just in terms of his decision making to to keep current to keep competitive with that so i don't think the two men would have been necessarily at at odds but i mean new york was so insanely competitive that any new artist to enter into the realm it's almost as if beef was assumed like in the way that like when 50 cent became like the next big thing a few years later it was just a, I mean, he, actually, he actually legitimately pissed off a lot of people right, <laughs> prior to right. get Richard Die trying. But I think it, it doesn't really matter. Any new artist to enter into that is basically staking a claim that I am, this is my town. This is my city. If you want to be, if you want to have that title of King of New York, you got to take me out. And I think that, again, not having Biggie there, it just made, it meant for Jay, it's one less person he had to go head to head with, whether officially in the way that he and him and Nas did or more on the subliminal tip that certainly existed with Jay and other artists as well. That's fair. That's a fair point. I just want to believe in my heart that Frank White and Hova, uh, that there might've been a healthy competition, um, but they would have, that, that there would have been a collaborative album and that, that New York could have two Kings. As Biggie might've said, it was all a dream. <laughs> yes, it was. To bring this back to reasonable doubt, in terms of sleeper jams, this was actually a really hard one for me to figure out. And partly it's because I think in the way in which we've defined the sleeper jam on the show is it's a song that maybe didn't get as much love for your, from oneself in the beginning that then with the passage of time, you've reevaluated. And in sitting through Reasonable Doubt again, and I hadn't listened to this album uh, front to back in, in quite a while, but I certainly did give it a lot of run back in the day. I haven't really changed my opinion about any of the songs on here. So there's, there's not necessarily songs that I, you know, one of my least favorite songs on here might've been something like 22 twos, which I think is fine. Like it's not a bad song. It's just not one of my favorites. And 24 years later, still not one of my favorites. Like I, I haven't really changed my evaluation on there. So I guess the other way to, to tackle this question would be a song that doesn't necessarily get as much recognition on the same level of, let's say an eight note mm, or Brooklyn's Finest, which are songs that, you know, a lot of people really love. I guess I would go with one of the, the songs buried on the B side, which is coming of age, which features uh, Memphis, Memphis Bleak, Bleak, one of Jay's like, you know, best known mentees, someone who Jay really tried to make happen. Don't think it really ha ever happened for, for Bleak, but whatever. Um, and it really comes back to a combination of it's just, this is another Clark. It's another Clark Kent production. It's really well produced. 
And it just sits long and far enough into the back of the album where if you've been listening to this from the very beginning in a linear fashion, like you're on a cassette tape or something, maybe by this point in the LP, you're a little bit fatigued. Um, and that's maybe one reason why it's not going to be, it was never like one of the big singles. It's not a song that you typically hear people talk about from his catalog. Um, actually bring it on, which is, a, a the second to last song, which features uh, jazz and, and sauce money could be another example. So I think a couple of these, a B-side cuts late into the B-side might be my example of a sleeper jam. I'm out here slinging, bringing the drama, trying to come up in the game and add a couple of dollar signs to my name. I'm out here serving, disturbing the peace. Life could be better like my man reclined in plush leather seats and selling weight. I'm selling eight, bull, 16, trying to graduate. I mean, coming of age, we were just talking about Brooklyn's finest and the way in which the two MCs trade off with one another. And this is another great example of Jay and Bleak having some of that same kind of lyrical tag team style that him and Big had on the A side with Brooklyn's Finest. I think my sleeper gem would probably be Dead Presidents 2. Um, I think where it comes in in the album as track four and track five, and those are the two two of my favorite samples on there. I think Dead Presidents uh, might be Lonnie Liston, and I think Feeling It is Ahmad Jamal. But either way, I just love when Jay-Z gets into his bag about... um, his his street exploits, I would say his street yeah. his street situations, and yeah, yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> and dead presidents is is, is one of them. I like his lyrics on there, and I love that sample. Yeah. So that would be the sleeper, and and I've and and I've listened to that more recently, but it, I I still think it doesn't get the um the attention that a lot of the other stuff on here did. What track would you use to introduce a Jay-Z neophyte to this album? I think it would be Brooklyn's Finest. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think it would be Brooklyn's Finest. I mean, I love Ain't No N, but I think think Brooklyn's Finest introduces us to the brand. I think that tells Mm. a lot. I think juxtaposing him against against Biggie um, shows the difference in the two rappers, the difference in their approach to, uh, to entrepreneurship. And mm-hmm. uh, establishes, I think Jay Z is the more sophisticated gangster, and yeah. uh, and the hustler, more of the hustler. Um, mm-hmm. This is for the G's, and this is for the hustlers. Biggie's the G. <laughs> Biggie's the G. Uh, Jay Z's the hustler. Jay Z's the hustler. Yeah. Right. Right. So that'd be the one. I think. Uh, yeah, along those lines, I think can't knock the hustle, which you you said many insightful things about. I think that could certainly be an example. But I would go with politics as usual, and the main difference, and these are the you know these are the number one and number two songs off of the LP in terms of the the order that they appear. I think can't can't knock the hustle is the reason why I would hold it back from being that intro to Jay's because to me it is so formulated to be you know crossover hit, especially having Mary on there. Versus politics as usual is just Jay by himself, right? He doesn't have any, any other features on there. Um, the production is from Ski, who I think is really essential to the sound of the album. And to me, this is the introduction of the persona of Jay-Z that I think as a whole, Reasonable Doubt, really seeks to introduce you to. Jay-Z 
All right, so I'm putting you in the hot seat. If you had to describe this album in three words, what would they be? Mm. Beginning the takeover. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a long it's the long game. It's the long game by Jay, but this is where it be, this is where it starts. Where you from? If our audience members liked this discussion around reasonable doubt, we want to give you some other options to check out afterwards. Uh, I'll start. And I mentioned this at the very beginning in the front half of the show today. Take a listen to De La Soul's Stakes is High. Um, If reasonable doubt uh, is lost in cashmere thoughts, then I think Stakes is High tries to chin check hip hop's materialist aspirations. And so as I was saying in that first half, the two albums to me really, really end up being in conversation with each other, however intentional or not. Uh, and I wouldn't say that they're, you know, night and day different, but certainly a lot of the themes of reasonable doubt are exactly what Daylaw is speaking to in terms of their kind of elder statesman approach to taking hip hop's ethos of that era and trying to throw some critiques at it. But you got to keep it for real. Forget about your jewels and gems. You won't be needing none of them, the tool to fix the error. Mamela used to wear a name buckle, now he chuckled cause he earned a dime quicker. Talking about a burner, sipping on some malt liquor. And all these kitties wishing they were super MCs. But to earn my S, I had to learn some S about it. I think that's sound, and I think if you if you like this album, then next up should be Foxy Brown's Il Nana. Uh, mm. This comes out a little bit later. Reasonable Doubt comes out in June. This comes out in November. And, mm. I, th- and I think you will hear uh, a lot of, of, of Jay's influence uh, on her flow, on her delivery. It's largely produced by the track masters. And she also establishes a brand with this. She establishes herself as Il Nana. Well, that will do it for this part one of our take two on Jay-Z. Next week, we will be jumping ahead seven years to Jay-Z's quote-unquote retirement LP, the Black Album. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported